You already know what time it is. What is up, good people? Welcome back to The Mourner's Bench, a podcast by Theolab Media. I am Brandon Thomas Maxwell, and I'm here with KT and Pastor Sam. And today we are welcoming to The Mourner's Bench, newly elected and sworn in Georgia State Senator, the Reverend Kim Jackson. Senator Jackson, if you will. Senator Jackson will share a little about her journey into Georgia State politics how she feels about being the first out LGBTQ person to be elected to the Georgia State Senate, her call to ordained ministry in the Episcopal Church, and how her pastoral ministry informs her work as a politician. But before we get into that, a quick word of gratitude. We are so thankful to our first few listeners who have subscribed to Theolab Media's Patreon, your exclusive bonus content, you know, your extended interviews, access to private Facebook groups, Zoom sessions with the TMB crew, and more are all on the way soon and very soon, we promise. Thank you so much for your patience. We are still trying to catch up after the holiday break. We did not pause like most podcasts, and we are now paying for it, but we promise your goodies are on the way. Look for an email with more info soon. If you have not yet visited our Patreon page, it's never too late to do so. Just visit patreon.com slash Theolab Media to become a patron today. You can give as little as $5 per month or as much as $1,000 per month if the Lord so moves. Just put your tithe in the basket. And for those who signed up for Theolab Media's mailing list, your newsletter is also on the way. We promise. As I mentioned last week, we've modified our recording format and schedule. We're now coming to you on Mondays and Thursdays. And we have a few podcasts beyond the Mourner's Bench that are in development stages right now. So we're just trying to catch up with ourselves. Thank you so much for your patience. Your blessing is coming. (laughs) Just keep on believing. And with that, let's get right into it. Senator Jackson, welcome to the Mourner's Bench. If you are unfamiliar with the senator, I'm calling you senator forever and ever now. I don't even care. I know that I knew you beforehand, but you are always going to be my senator. But if you're unfamiliar with Kim, she is an Episcopal priest and a new Georgia state senator. She is the first openly LGBTQ human elected to the Georgia state senate in a landslide victory. She is also the vicar at the Church of the Common Ground, a church community for those on the streets, and a ministry of the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta. Kim is a graduate of Furman University, which I was completely surprised by. I would have never guessed that. And also Emory University, which is where I know her from. And really, she's just an all-around good human. You can read more about her online by visiting KimForGeorgia.com or by following her on social media at the handle KimForGeorgia. That's all the intro we're going to do today because you can Google more if you'd like to do so. But we want to get into the interview before Kim is far too important to be on the mourner's bench with us. So Kim, I have always known you to be quite a thoughtful and deeply spiritual human. So it was no surprise to read that at the beginning of the year, you were sworn into office with your grandparents' Bible. Can you tell us a little more about your grandparents and 
why their Bible was important to carry with you during your swearing-in ceremony? Yeah, it's always an honor uh, to be able to speak about my grandparents who have now gone on the glory. But I, I often tell people that it was through my grandparents, and particularly my grandfather, that I think I first met Jesus. And uh, I think it's important to note my, my grandfather, this is my maternal side, he had Alzheimer's for essentially all of my childhood. I don't remember him ever knowing who I was. Like, I, I don't remember him ever calling me Kim. Uh, he had some vague sense of maybe I was a grandchild. But he would come over to our house almost every day and I would make him uh, what I now know to be a very bad cup of coffee. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was 10, 11, 12 years old and I would sit down at the piano bench and play hymns. And he didn't remember his own wife's name, but he knew every hymn wow. that I played and every word. You know, I was I was young. I didn't play the piano particularly well. I could play the same kind of five songs over and over again and he didn't mind. <laughs> and it was in so doing that I realized I saw what it was to have a relationship with God that was so deep and so lasting that even as his brain was being riddled, wow. right, with this disease that uh, that, that love of God existed somewhere else that, that even Alzheimer's couldn't reach. And so um, you know, I put my hand on, on that Bible that he held, those pages are thin and in it he highlighted verses and he uh, for those pastors out there he was paying attention because he put the date beside mm. the verse yes mm. come through you know every Sunday that verse was read you had a little date you know 1977 <laughs> January 5th mm. the Supreme Court Justice uh, Charlie Bethel swore me in and he he's looked at that Bible and, and y'all it's one of those old Bibles that got like white Jesus on the front mm. <laughs> <laughs> and he said you know every hand that has ever held this Bible rests on top of this Bible with you. And that that is so true. That's exactly what it felt like. I was so clear that my ancestors were with me. Every name that's written in that family book, they were there with me. That's beautiful. Wow. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about my own grandmother who also um, had Alzheimer's in the last half of her life and had these lucid moments and they were always related to music in the church or a scripture. So yeah. there's something about the word of God as the old folks used to say. I was also relating, Kim, because my maternal grandfather also had Alzheimer's in my childhood. It was the same. I don't think he ever knew who I was and may had some sense that I was a grandchild. Now, he wasn't quite as connected to God. He was mean. So uh, that that's where the things are a little different. <laughs> <laughs> so you you got to read your words so that if you get Alzheimer's, you'll still right. be a nice person, right? <laughs> but your grandfather wasn't the only ancestor you brought with you. I mean, you also wore a stole that originally belonged to American activist, Episcopal priest, and lawyer, Polly Murray. How did you come to possess this stole? Reverend Polly Murray you know, was the first black female priest ever ordained in the Episcopal Church, which is absolutely mind-boggling to me. But consequently, she had a deep heart and passion for making sure that Black women in the Episcopal Church, particularly Black priests, were recognized and honored and that we stayed connected with her. And so a number of her souls exist in what I would say is the generation above me of Black female priests. And so I just put in a few phone calls to say, um, hey, I know these stoles exist and I'm too young to, to have one yet passed down, but can I borrow one? And interestingly, my, my godmother actually had one. I had no idea that she had one, but um, she was just like, oh, of course I've got one. And so 
she shipped it down to me and the stole that I wore, it's kente cloth, it belonged to Polly Murray. My godmother sewed some crosses onto it. And so I felt like she was there with me because of COVID. She wasn't able to be there physically, but you know, it just um, all felt like it came together to have these black women. I mean, Polly Murray isn't, I mean, she represents all the things that you said, Brandon, right? And for a black female Episcopal priest, she also brings with her the spirit of all the black women priests that are in the church. And so I felt like they were all with me. I love that you were sworn in wearing your clergy stole. The image of an elected official in clergy attire is really significant to me. To me, this image suggests that there's likely a lot of continuity between your vocational identity of pastor and this new elected office in which you're serving. Would you say your work in the Georgia Senate and your choice to run for office was a call similar to your call to pastoral ministry? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I will say a lot of thought and prayer has gone into my attire, particularly for that day and whether or not I'd wear a stole or a clergy shirt and there are all kinds of complications and we could spend an hour talking about that choice. But I will say very, very clearly that I very much use the language of call when I talk about the choice to run for office and to ultimately serve in office. You know, I felt called to ministry when I was eight years old and was able to articulate that to my family and uh, very much so in childhood. It was 13 years old when I had that real sense of call to elected office. And it was rooted in and grounded in this notion and belief that God had called me to make positive change in the world. And when I saw elected officials at work in my hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina, I, I saw them making decisions that mattered. I had that connection of, look, I don't know the where, I don't know the when, but I know the what of my life at 13 was that God had called me to make positive change in the world and that elected office was clearly one of the ways that I could do that. And so, yes, absolutely. I understand this is a call. It's a call to be a public servant. It's a call to, to really serve the people of God, to serve all of God's people in ways that ultimately help us live out the gospel, right? I am working to help make sure that we feed the hungry, that we clothe the naked, that we set the captive free. And I use that language on purpose because it's straight mm -hmm. out of scripture. But I'm talking about, let's let some people out of jail, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about some real criminal justice well, reform. Yeah. So that is what I feel called to do. And one of the avenues yes. that I feel like I can live out my calling of the gospel is to do that through elected office. So what was intriguing to me though is you said eight for call to ministry, 13 for a called elected office. I don't like to do coming out narratives. I think that you invite people in. You don't, I mean, you can do what you want to do, but my personal philosophy is that we invite people in. For me, what was helpful in inviting people into my story about my sexual identity was understanding that as also a call. I'm curious when you experienced a call to live authentically in the fullness of your God-given ordained sexual orientation and how that, if at all, troubled your, I don't know when it came on the timeline, but how did that inform your calls to ministry in elected office? Yeah, well, Brandon, I thought you were going to say, how did that trouble the waters? Um, <laughs> well, I, mean, because... I was going to go there, but I, wanted, I didn't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair. Well, it, it did trouble the waters for sure. Uh, I, I think I came to understand 
the greater fullness of who I was when I was uh, in my early 20s. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have that classic story. Like I fell in love with my college roommate when I was 19 and she didn't love me back. We are still really good friends to this day. Um, <laughs> but I, I didn't really, really come into accepting and knowing and understanding who I was until my, my first year at Candler. So I was 22 years old and it troubled the waters. Uh, I, I felt like in coming out um, that all that I felt called to was no longer available to me, that I, I would not be able to be a pastor, that I would certainly not be able to run for office because, I mean, it's the South. Uh, I, I didn't know anybody who was right. who was queer and elected official. Like, I mean, well, we always knew there was someone that was on the panel, right? Like, but that wasn't the kind of life I was trying to live. And so, you know, it, it's been hard. And, and I will say that as I've grown um, in this kind of more progressive Christian uh, life and lived in Atlanta, it became, I felt like the idea of being a pastor and a politician came into conflict too. It was interesting on the campaign trail, I had a lot of white women particularly who very much questioned the ability for those two things to live together in a way that wouldn't be harmful. People were very suspicious of me being this pastor who was trying to be a politician and, you know, they wanted to know, was I going to be pro-choice or, or pro-birth? And like, there were all these questions because by the time I came of age in this progressive world, those two things kind of stood in contradiction in a way that you know, 10, 15 years ago, I felt like being gay and being a pastor stood in, in contradiction, right? So it's it's been an interesting journey of realizing that what I felt like was not possible, that it is possible, and that there's just going to have to be a lot of explaining along the way. Because some people aren't going to trust me because I'm gay. Some people aren't going to trust me because I'm black. Some people ain't going to trust me because I'm a pastor, right? Some people are not going to trust me because I'm gay and a pastor and they don't get that, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. all been, it's all mixed together. And I, I have learning that some people don't trust me because I'm a politician, uh, yeah. regardless of orientation, right? Yeah. I was just going to say, layered on top of all that, we can't ignore the patriarchy because a whole lot of men ain't going to trust you because you're a woman. That's right. That's right. And, and some women won't trust you because you're a woman. Right. And yet 80% of my district said yes mm. to me. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's what that, yeah. I didn't realize it was an. I mean, until I, we were preparing for this episode, I didn't realize it was an eighty twenty landslide. I was like, oh, she, like Kim got elected, elected, like for real, for real. Yeah. <laughs> There's no recount necessary. It doesn't surprise me that white folks, especially white women, would be concerned about how do you dwell in the space between these seemingly competing entities, right? And you also throw on that Baptist turned Episcopalian, you know, like you find yourself in this tension in a lot of places. And I'm wondering how you find your grounding. How do you maintain the you that is you, right, in the midst of, of these? Because even now, as you go into the Senate and it's mostly Republican and you are the queer person in the Senate now. Like, how do you maintain the you that is you spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, all of that? Yeah. Uh, so a lot of prayer and a lot of a lot of gospel music. You know, my my grandfather showed me the importance of of knowing those songs, of having those songs live in your heart. Um, and so mm -hmm. that that music, um, you know, really does, I think, ground me in such important ways. I, I also I have friends who still know me as Kim, yes. not Senator Jackson, although it's funny to hear it. 
I think that for me has meant a lot, um, more than I realized that it would, would be to, you know, pick up the phone and have somebody be like, hey, Kim, how you doing? Um, mm-hmm. And not Senator Jackson, hey, I need you to do something. Um, that's yeah. That's been really important and grounding for me. And then, you know, bringing all the ancestors with me on Monday, I didn't just bring them on Monday. Like that cloud yeah. of witnesses is with me every day. Yeah. Every time I step foot on that floor and, you know, I I, I sit there and I look at the Georgia seal and I look at that, you know, the Georgia flag that sits back there. And I remember it wasn't that long ago that that flag had a Confederate flag inside of it. Um, And and I just I'm just so mindful that our our ancestors fought for this to be able to happen for a black queer woman to be able to sit in that seat and to sit in the same with the same level of authority as the other fifty-five of them, mm-hmm. and and so that I think is is grounding for me. It's also it also gives me hope and a sense of I'm not alone in this. Right. Because if I felt alone, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. While you were speaking, I was just getting this vision of grounding from the outside and being held from around this cloud of witnesses. So many folks have trouble standing in the tension in those spaces because they're not grounded in that history or folks who are coming before. I think also I read somewhere that you've got all these things to do, but you still have to go outside in the morning and milk your goat. <laughs> I don't even know how you take care of that many ducks and chickens, but but like there's something about the the daily rhythm of life also that must at least remind you <laughs> that that you're Kim. Yeah, well, and I that that was the um, the more sanitized version of that. Quote. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> what I asked the the author to redact was that I said, you know, I still have to go out and shovel shit every day. Right. Um, <laughs> and there's nothing like there's nothing more humbling than that. Right. Uh, yeah. So, and there's nothing more um, I think grounding in many ways of our connectedness, our relatedness to the earth, the land uh, that you know we are all God's creatures and. And, and and there's just something that's really grounding and and ultimately holy in that process of of, of shoveling shit. Yeah. You mentioned songs that ground you. Do you sing, Kim? I feel like you sing a little bit. Uh, I, I I have that same like old lady voice. I can sing all the old lady songs. <laughs> sing us a verse of an old lady song. Sing, sing sing a little bit of your favorite hymn. Come on, mother. <laughs> Come on, Kim. Line, line a good hymn for us, like a good Baptist. Y'all, y'all just put me on the spot. This wasn't in the script, so. <laughs> we just follow what the Spirit does. We just follow in the Spirit of God. I know, I, I know. I do, I do appreciate a good line hymn. And, you know, that Father, I stretch my hand to thee, no other help. Whoa, shut up. So many moments when those words just come up for me. We were joking before we got started, and I was talking about how you would be senator to me. After hearing your story and you embracing and understanding your call at eight uh, to be a pastor and then 13 to elected office, you will always be the reverend senator to me. I just want you to know, but, but you will also always be Kim. As we talk about grounding and balance, I think we've all heard that Pastor Raphael Warnock, who was elected to the U.S. Senate, plans to also continue to serve as the pastor of Ebenezer, America's Freedom Church. And so I wonder, like, for you moving forward as a vicar of a congregation, what's that balance going to look like for you? 
Sure, yeah. So I too will continue to serve as a pastor to my congregation. I think the way I've learned, the way we make these things work is that we build teams around us that can help support us and that can can really hold things uh, for us when we're not there. And so I have an amazing team at the Church of the Common Grounds that continues to to be on the ground when I can't be there. And the same is true also for the Senate. I have a really wonderful team of people who support me in that work. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've had to be really clear about when I'm speaking as a pastor and when I'm speaking as a politician, um, largely because of the partisan nature of the work that I do. When Reverend Raphael Warnock was running, you know, we were all really excited about it. But when I was pastor, um, I couldn't be yeah. excited about the reverend, I just had to be excited about getting people to vote mm-hmm. full stop, mm-hmm. um, right? And so it's, it's, it's been this interesting balance. But I think fundamentally for me, I am both. That is very clear to me. And that, that's clear to my congregants. Like, they respect that. And, uh, you know, the beauty of the congregation that I serve is that these folks are people who live on the streets. Many of them sleep across the street from the Capitol. Yeah. Like, when they go to sleep at night, they can see that gold dome shining down. They now have their pastor is, is their senator. Yeah. And they have access to power in a way that they've never had before. Uh, And so they are excited about that. They're excited about what that means for how we can advocate for better things um, inside of that dome. And, And to me, that synergy feels so right and good. I'm looking forward to living into it further, right? To, to being more than just one week into the assembly. So I'm hearing two things. I mean, so on the one hand, I'm hearing that there has to be a certain distinction between your work as a pastor and your work as a politician. But I also hear a little bit of, for you, there's a lot of synergy between those two things. And maybe it's not as distinct or it's not a binary as it may appear to some. Like there's synergy there. And I think about a, a quote from one of my uncles. Like he, he used to say, the only difference between a pastor and a politician is the book they read. So is it distinct or is it, am I hearing that right? Yeah, I'm, I've tried to make them two different things. You know, the difference between Reverend Warnock and, and Kim Jackson is that he ran as Reverend Warnock and I ran as Kim Jackson thinking that I could make that distinction, that I could pare those two things down right down the middle. And it became clear to me every time people introduced me to speak as Reverend Kim Jackson that it wasn't possible. Now, there, there are some places where the two things are extraordinarily discreet and different. Um, when it comes to passing policy, you know, I can't pass and would never dare to pass religiously biased policy, right? Yeah. That is a distinct place. But you know, the book that I'm reading um, is a book that does influence the policies that I pass. Come on, talk about the book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, no, no, I'm like, and I think that that book has a whole lot to say about how we treat our neighbors. And fundamentally, that is the work that I'm doing as a senator is figuring out how is Georgia going to treat her neighbors? Mm -hmm. Yes. My God. They can't see me, but I'm rocking right now. <laughs> right. And so that that is the work. And, and, you know, as a pastor, when I stand out and I pastor and I, and I preach with my congregation, I'm preaching a gospel about how do we treat our neighbors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kim, let, let me jump in right here. We're recording this episode on King Day. And, and the reason I'm, I'm highlighting that is because I want to I want to 
talk about something that you just mentioned about the folks who are living or sleeping across from the Capitol, who now you said have access to power. This quote by Dr. Martin Luther King about power without love. He says, power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. As I heard you speak about those on the margins having access to power, I thought about this quote from King. Do you see yourself, your work in those two callings, uh, fulfilling kind of what King says here? Yeah, I mean, I think that my life has been about justice and justice is love and action. I think that's also a King quote, um, but it is about um, me understanding that the ways that we can bring change about in this world is through having access to power and then using that power uh, to bring change in the world in a positive way, right? That that is the, that's, that's the goal of all of us, I think, ultimately. Yeah. You know, there's some, there's some irregularities in how we, uh, how we talk about people who live on the margins and how we budget for people who live in the margins mm-hmm. in our Georgia budget, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm trying to correct some of those irregularities and try to help match our words with our actions um, so that we can actually begin to do the work of helping ensure that all Georgians thrive. And, yeah. uh, you know, people can call that gospel work. They can call that church work. They can call that just being a good citizen work because um, I think that's what really what we're all called to do is to try to make sure that we advocate and try to be good citizens for all of us. We're going to take a quick breather and then jump right back in to continue our discussion with Kim. When we return, we'll talk more about Kim's hopes for her first year in office, her perspective on Georgia state politics, as well as United States politics more broadly. And you already know, we got to get Kim's read on who belongs on the mourner's bench this week. All of that when we return after this quick break. This March, Theolab Media is thrilled to partner with Dr. Lisa Weaver, on a new podcast entitled Healing Jephthah's Daughters. In this podcast, Lisa will deploy family systems theory, biblical criticism, and storytelling to explore the childhood traumas women and girls experience at the hands of their fathers and guardians. To learn more, visit theolabmedia.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay in the know with Theo. Let's get back into it. So, Kim, you are one of six LGBTQIA plus lawmakers elected to the Georgia State Legislature. The U.S. House of Representatives has the squad, you know, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. And we've got like a queer squad thing happening in the Georgia State Legislature, I think. Like, what do you think about the presence of six queer folks in one year? Like, what does that signify for Georgia State politics? Well, I think that it tells people right on that, right up front, that this is not not the Georgia you thought it was. Mm. Uh, I right. think so many people often assume Georgia is the South. I mean, we've changed people's perspectives because we went blue um, twice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I think generally yep. speaking, yep. though, people do not assume that um, 
that Georgia is a place that would dare to elect six LGBTQI um, legislators like that just wouldn't imagine that. And, you know, many of us are, are people of color, women of color, in fact. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that, um, that we're changing the face of Georgia. I'm also excited that we are um, actually beginning to get the kind of representation that is deserved and reflective of Georgia citizens, right? Um, Georgia has long been the black gay mecca, but it's been a long time since we've had, and I am now the first, right? I'm the only LGBTQ person in the Senate who was one, and, and I'm black, right? So we got one black queer person in the Senate for how many black queer folks that live yeah. in Georgia, right? Um, so this is a working right. process for sure. We are not finished. We haven't gotten there. And I tell people this all the time. I will be the first one to write a check um, <laughs> for whoever decides that you know that they feel called to run for this work because uh, I don't want to be the only one. It's, it's not enough. <laughs> Brandon? No, no, my mouth. I'm too unfiltered to run for office. I got. They wouldn't vote for me. They would find all my text messages and stuff. I can't do that. <laughs> I do have a question, Kim. Do you feel kind of the weight or, or responsibility of being the voice of Black queer folks because you are the only Black queer person in the Senate right now? Yeah, you know, Sam, I, Brandon mentioned this earlier. I went to Furman, uh, so I'm used to being the only something in the room, right? Uh, when I was at Furman, I was often the only black person in the room. Uh, I'm in ministry. I'm often the only woman in the room, and, and I'm often the only gay person in the room. And so uh, I'm, I'm used to that, and I've learned how to, to both hold the responsibility of that and also not allow that to be a burden to me and feel like I'm weighted down by it. And that's a delicate balance. Um, but I, I'm very quick to be mindful of the fact that I cannot speak on behalf of the entire LGBTQIA community. We are not a monolith. And, and I'm also really clear I can't speak on behalf of the entire Black queer community because, again, we're not a monolith. Um, so I can raise some of the issues that I know are important to us or I believe should be important to us. And at the same time, I'm really trying to recruit some other folks to come alongside because I can't manage the weight of this it's not possible and it's not fair to the people to just have one voice um, trying to articulate on behalf of a very broad and large community what what our issues are i mean so so to recruiting others is this replicable kim like was this a fluke to have six openly gay folks elected to the georgia state legislature this year i always get concerned about what republicans are doing in the background or what anyone's doing in the background but we've just seen um, at least i've seen i don't know I, I won't put any words in anybody else's mouth wherein whenever there are these advances that we make in terms of elected officials or just in society in general a lot of times a certain political party will still control power in the South, and then they'll start to re-engineer things in the background to try to make sure that it doesn't happen again. So what, what what's your read on that? Yeah, so there were only two of us that were just elected this go-round. The other four were incumbents who've been around. Um, our first LGBTQ state senator was elected 20 years ago. Um, and I, I want to know, it took us a full generation before we could get somebody in the Senate. <laughs> um, so... Progress is slow. But I do think that uh, certainly 
people in the majority party are working to try to organize and engineer so that uh, particularly more people of color um, are not voting. We're going to see that come hard and fast at us in this year's session. You know, all, all the conveniences that we had of voting this year, we need to be prepared to fight to maintain those because the majority party is very yes. aware that it's people yeah. who look like, you know, Brandon yes. and Sam, it's people who look like us who, mm-hmm. who made use of those. And uh, so those things will be squashed to try to limit it. Um, I do I do think it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I think that the majority party at some point is going to um, probably come up with an LGBTQ candidate who is Republican um, to try mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. to try to draw some of us away. Uh, I think that's coming and we just need to be alert. So I'm not yeah. writing a check for that person. Um, <laughs> Good thought. <laughs> yeah, but I do think that that's coming. Um, and so we just need to be mindful of that, that everybody who loves like me doesn't necessarily uh, have the same politics oh, yes. as me. What's the queer equivalent of like your skin folks ain't always your kin folks? Like, what do we have? Anything? We, gonna, we need to come up with it real quick. <laughs> So in the last few weeks, we've read a lot of think pieces about um, the way that the church, really white evangelical churches, perpetuate the kind of theology that made Donald Trump's presidency possible, which has also led to a sort of splintering in American democracy, if you ask me. How do you plan to inhabit your role in the Senate without becoming the progressive liberal version of a Trump supporter, the other side of the coin, if you will? Brandon, I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining what what does that even look like? I don't have a vision of that at all, actually. I think part of what I was wrestling with is, and this is still an emerging thought, I would say, at a certain juncture, the Republican Party made a decision that we're going to marry ourselves to a conservative, more fundamentalist version of Christianity, the Southern Baptist Church. And we're going to get folks who think like this theologically to vote red. And on a previous episode, we've talked about the effectiveness of William Barber, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, and others in reclaiming the Christian tradition in a way that says it. to be Christian does not mean you have to be pro-life. It doesn't mean that you have to be anti-gay. It doesn't mean you have to be anti-black. You can claim this sort of ideology in the name of Jesus if you if that's your uh, particular tradition. And so I think what I'm always cautious of is how do those of us who identify with a Christian tradition and believe, I think accurately believe, that when you say you're a follower of Jesus that has political implications, how do we create a vision of the world that doesn't cause those that we are called to lead to mindlessly follow that, but to develop a sort of critical awareness about their faith that doesn't lead to the mindlessness that was the event at the Capitol on January the 6th. Does that help? Yeah, it does. And and I think, so the progressive lens through which I've been educated and find myself now is one that really deeply values critical thinking. And you know, one of the reasons why I chose the Episcopal Church was because I don't have to check my brain at the door. That's a quote you'll hear from many, many people who went from the Baptist Church to the Episcopal Church. And so kind of mindlessly following isn't consistent in, in my world with progressive theology, honestly. And, and I think the other piece of this is that what I'm learning very quickly in politics, and, and, I, and I think this is true for life, is that there is no room for purity. Um, so... You know, in order to legislate well, 
we're going to have to make some compromises. And, and I think that's true in life. In order for me to be a good partner with my spouse, okay, there's no room for purity in that, right? Um, there's got to be some compromise yeah. here. And, and I think that as long as we remember that, that the place for purity politics is not within, um, it's not within our culture, um, it's not within progressive theology, if we, as long as we remember that, then I think we'll be okay. And we don't, um, we are not at risk of becoming the opposite um, of a Trump supporter. Uh, and, and again, I'm still like, I'm just like, I'm a black queer woman. How, like, what is it? I don't even know how to be. I just don't know how to be a Trump supporter in the yeah. reverse. <laughs> you know? I, I know a lot of white people who know how to be that, but not because they have progressive theology, but because like this progressive ideology. So when I read your question, Brandon, I, that's what I was thinking about. And so I can I can name lists of people who are not willing to engage the complexity of decision making. I take a vow on ordination to preserve the peace, unity, and purity of the church. I mean, so it is deeply rooted in the Presbyterian mindset, and so. Maybe he was thinking about white people. Well, I think that may be what it is. Yeah, exactly. Because I know a lot of them like that. I mean, I think so. I think about some of my white associates. Um, the people that I call friend are less prone to this, but my white associates who do become transformed by the renewing of their minds, if you will, to use that sort of Christian imagery, and they become convinced and or convicted that Black Lives Matter, and then there's a certain level of intolerance and anger and animosity yeah. that they have. And it's like, but you ain't even black. Like you matter. It, it seems like you matter than I am. And I sit at so many tables with white folks I know don't actually love me or don't actually care about me. And I navigate that shit and you can't do that. And so I, I think perhaps Katie, you're right that there's a certain way in which white folks live into progressive liberal idealism that still feels hateful. And it still feels intolerant and it feels like the same sort of oppression and domination that we experience at the hands of white folks who vote differently, that are less progressive and or less liberal. Yeah. And I think that it ultimately still centers them, that that kind of progressive ideology is still fundamentally white supremacist in, in nature and that it's centering white people in their their white anger, um, their white wokeness. And so I, I think it's still deeply problematic um, in, in many, many ways. So we could actually continue this for a really, really long time. I am selfishly wanting to, but we also want to honor your time, Senator. So let's take another quick break and head on down to the altar and see who Kim puts on this here mourner's bench. Oh, I can't wait for this. Say that Senator again, Brandon, because you got to do it like your grandma would do. Senator. Let me channel Flora. Hold on. Flora. And she got a good Southern Black Baptist name. She does. Mother Flora. Senator Jackson. All right, the time has come and the hour is nigh. We have come once again to the end of an episode and you know what that means. We got to go on back to the altar and tarry a little while for the Holy Ghost. So all ye who are weary and heavy laden by imperialism and white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy, come on, come on down. down to the altar and drink yeah. of this fountain of black, brown, and rainbow <laughs> goodness. I promise there's plenty oh, good Lord room. Who's on the bench? Oh, I'm sorry, I, went to, I was in church. Come on, Pastor. Yeah, but you better worship. <laughs> Sam, if you notice, I have stopped using the little intro music because you continue to override it every single 
uh, recording session. So whatever you moaning right now is what's going to be our intro Ooh, music. <laughs> I'm trying to make it ah. feel like a real altar. Well, in my context, that's what when they said come to the altar, some mother was in the back of the church moaning. Said you talking about Jesus. You got to play that sad white people music at the altar call now. So that's what gets people crying and coming to the altar. <laughs> but you got to make it black, though. That's the altar call now. <laughs> Listen, I got some people I want to put on the altar. When the protesters were in the Capitol, there's like one black guy standing there who was with the protesters. I want to put that young man on the bench. You know, unless he was like a secret spy trying to figure out what was going on. If he was there engaging in the protest, brother, you got to sit on the bench. I want you to know when they find out who you are, you know, they're going to throw you under the jail. Because that's how our system has been constructed and has operated for so long. So today, I think I'm going to put on the bench, just in the spirit of like the end of our conversation uh, earlier, in a compassionate way, progressive liberal white folks who become, who just turn over the coin. Like, if your entire life you've been holding a coin that is white supremacy and it's been on heads, and then you get to know two black person, two black people, and you just turn your coin over and it is now on tails, it is still white supremacist. And so what I need you to do is just have a seat for a second and let this progressive liberal contemporary Christian music soothe your little white soul and calm you down a little bit because there are ways in which you are doing more harm than good. If it is the case that you now refuse to go to your Thanksgiving table or your Christmas dining room table or talk to your grandmama who you know voted for Trump twice, if you refuse to go to those spaces, then those folks probably ain't going to be transformed because you have an access that we don't. And I think the other thing that I'll say, because this is a very compassionate read, it may be the case that you should go see a therapist and intentionally look for a therapist who can help you wrestle with what it means to unlearn white supremacy and the effect that that has had on your psyche. That does not mean go to psychology today and just look for black therapists in Georgia because you might not actually need a black therapist. You may need a white therapist. You don't need to commodify blackness in a way where you have to have a black therapist that makes you feel good about yourself. There's a whole other episode that we could talk about on what it means for your therapist to embody one of the tropes of black people or for you to make your therapist embody one of the tropes of black people. So I'm simply saying connect with someone who can help you unlearn the hatred because it's not enough just to say black lives matter. You have to also figure out how do I love black people? How do I live in relationship with black people? It is not enough to say love is love, love wins. You also have to develop relationships with queer folks, with LGBTQIA folks. At the end of the day, something that I've also realized is as much as some of you all, progressive liberal white folks, get frustrated with your family members, you also have a deep love for them. And it comes up when I start talking about them. Because when I start talking about them, you start defending grandma. And so I need you on this mourner's bench to get to the place where you love black people, not as an abstraction, but real black people, as much as you love your grandma. And you love LGBTQIA folks just as much as you love your grandma. Because when you do Thanksgiving dinner, even though you might be mad about it, it is actually your understanding of your love for that family member that keeps you silent. 
And I need you to get to the place where just like you defend your family members subconsciously, when I start talking about them, that when you hear them talking about me, consciously or subconsciously, Mm. that you speak. So sit on this bench, unlearn your hate, and learn what it means to love. I will say that the purity politics thing that you said, Kim, really hit me in a way um, that kind of highlighted this Presbyterian ordination vow more than anything else. I knew we don't like division. I know we don't like to dwell in this holy tension that we say that we do. I will, I'll just put on the Presbyterian denomination as a whole. You got the progressive ones, Brandon, but I think I'm going to put the Presbyterian Church USA on, as a whole on the bench to really investigate and interrogate what we mean by this when we say peace, unity, and purity. I know what we mean is no tension, but what does it mean to open ourselves up to the spirit who's going to call us all to do something different and that's going to be looking out for one another? So I think I'm going to put the Presbyterians on the bench. I'm going to put that peace, unity, purity question on the bench. I think the Presbyterians are going to have to stay there for a while, as is that question, but that's what I want to do. I'm going to add some folks to your, your bench. First of all, we're going to go ahead and sit Vernon Jones, that's his name, on the bench. Yeah, that's his name. Our brother Vernon, yes. who yes. used to be a Democrat who, right before the storming of the Capitol, declared his uh, allegiance to the Republican Party. Who, yes, he did crowd surf, uh, strangely, face down um, on a crowd of people. <laughs> Which lets me know he ain't never done that before. Um, <laughs> why, did, why was he face down? It's kind of amazing they didn't drop him. I would have dropped somebody face down or crowd, crowd surfed on me, but anyway. That seems so weird. Like, what? Very weird. It's very weird. Very weird. Um, but he's weird. So, but I'm not putting him on the bench for being weird. I'm putting him on the bench for being a traitor. I'm going to add a whole crowd of people. We yes. don't have names for them. But what I do know is that. 70,000 people sent in tips to the FBI saying that they saw somebody that they know sieging the Capitol. I'm going to put all of them on the bench because why you didn't say nothing before it happened? Uh-oh. Like, Uh-oh. this is the work. We have to disarm these people. We got to call them out, get them fired, take away their assets before they do some shit like storming the Capitol. It's not a, it's not enough for you to do it afterwards. Now, read. I know some of y'all didn't know, but you did know. First of all, you anybody who show up with horns on and no shirt on, they not smart enough you to knew. hide. <laughs> they, <laughs> they knew. You know, so you need to come and sit down on the mourners bench and repent for that because you knew that your crazy brother, your nephew, your cousin, and your daddy were all planning to go up there and call some trouble. You. It was in the group chat. We're going to DC. It's like, where did you think they were going when they had their bodies painted in red and blue with a T? You have five family members, and you got one with a T, one with the R, one with the U, one with the M, one with a P. Right. Painted on their bodies. Where else was they going? That's right. You knew it. They weren't going to a football game. So, come on, sit down at the bench. Who else you got? I'm ready. Give me about four more groups, because it's a lot of people. Well, there are the, like, you know, million plus folks who did vote for uh, Kelly Loeffler and and, and and you know Purdue that we how many down. black people voted for them no 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 not black people just people in oh. general 
I, I was like, wait a minute, I gotta go proselytize some people because if this black people vote, <laughs> well, you know they aren't, Brandon. They look like you, black women. We got this on the lock. We know it's how true. to vote. It's true. Help us, because oh. yes, I'm gonna put black men on the bench, especially all the black men who voted for Leffler, who voted for Purdue, who voted for Trump. Right. I think what was not revealed, but what I was reminded of in this last presidential election is that black women are actually yeah. the most solid voting block and the most wise voting block in the country. In the future, if you're ever looking for what you should be doing politically, look at what mm-hmm. black women are doing. Because oftentimes it is the case that we disregard what black women are doing and we only turn to to black women in a time of emergency and in a time of chaos. And the reality is... Everybody who's tweeted about Stacey Abrams, everybody who's uh, tweeted about Latasha Brown and thanked them for all the organizing work they did, don't let that just be a November 2020 sort of praise. I need that praise to transcend into the moments where there isn't chaos and where there isn't crisis. And to bring it home more personally to black men where this got started, there is so much sexism mm. and homophobia inside of the black community and still inside of the black gay community as well. Tell and it. the fact that we can internalize that hatred, internalize that fear, internalize all of that oppression and mm. then do it to others, do it to ourselves, is a huge problem. Black men, I, I said this a long time ago, and I'm going to say it again. And I mean this, I'm not going to go in, I will go in a little bit, but I'm not going to go in too hard. If you are a black man or know a black man who voted for Trump, David Perdue, or Kelly Leffler, I seriously want to have a conversation with you because what I'm after is understanding. I have some suspicions. I have some hunches about what made you vote for that person, but I want to hear it from your mouth and I want us to engage in a dialogue so that I'm not, I don't need to be transformed because I'm not going to ever vote that way. I'm going to be honest and let you know up front so you know what you're signing up for so you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind because there's no way in hell that a black woman can mm. birth you. There's no way in hell that you can marry a black woman. There's no way in hell you can have a black daughter and still choose to vote for any other three mm-hmm. folks that I just named. Why do you hate yourself? Why do you hate yourself? That's what I was thinking in my mind. How can you hate yourself that much? But let me tell y'all, y'all, this is the sin of supremacy. So what whiteness has taught us is that being better than someone else is the goal. Yes. And black men have internalized that. And you know Come who through. they think they're better than? is black women. Yep. It's, it's the sin of supremacy that, it, it, yeah, there's fear, yeah, there's hate, but it is the sin of supremacy that has grabbed hold of black men and that results in them beating us at rates that are greater than other, you know, communities that leaves in them talking shit about us. Like we aren't as valuable as they are. It's the sin mm. of supremacy that leads them to cast a vote for a Trump or a Leffler or a Purdue. That is what it is. It's the need to be better than, and they've decided that they need to be better than women. That's 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 what it is. That's my past senator, y'all. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and many thanks once again to the good Reverend Senator Kim Jackson for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Would you do us one more little solid before you leave? Will you handle our sign-off today? This is Kim Jackson signing off for the Mourner's Bench. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, take a moment to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave both a review and rating to help other listeners who are just getting to know the Mourner's Bench. And if you'd like to connect with the Mourner's Bench cast more directly, email what's up at theolabmedia.com or follow at theolabmedia on social media channels. We'll see y'all on Thursday. Peace. Peace. Senator. Senator Jackson.